Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, June 28th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. And in the mailbag, we'll be reading some of your Toy Story 5 pitches. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Uh, Not much, actually. (laughs) There's really not much news going on. I think, you know... A lot of Hollywood has the summer off, and especially with next week being July 4th week, uh, you know, just nothing much is going on. Uh, But we do have a couple news items to talk about today before we get to the mailbag. Uh, The first of which is Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Um, As you know, we've done a lot of coverage on Galaxy's Edge for the site. And uh, Disney, I think, was preparing... For the worst, like there were rumors that Disneyland was going to hit capacity for the first few months that Galaxy's Edge was open. Um, they they basically changed everything. They they took a huge uh, approach to how they were going to handle the opening of this land. They basically changed the way that the annual pass passes work and basically made it so that annual passes could be blocked out for Disneyland and not Disney California Adventure. So uh, almost all the passes, except for like the top of the tier passes, are blocked out um, for the um, a lot of the summer of when uh, Galaxy's Edge is open in Disneyland. And they also did a couple other things. They, um, you know, I mean, I, I guess they were very clear in their messaging and like how this whole thing was going to be run. That the first three weeks of the opening of this land would have re- you need a reservation to get in. Uh, you couldn't get in if you didn't have a reservation. And then after that, they were going to do these boarding groups that basically you would arrive at the park, you'd get through the app, get in line through this virtual queuing system, and through that you'd be able to enter the land when your boarding group boards. Um, so uh, they did that. They're also building this new parking garage to uh, accommodate all these guests that they were expecting. But here's the thing. this This week was the first week that you didn't need a reservation to go to star Wars galaxy's edge. And I went on Wednesday and it was the, the emptiest I've ever seen it. 
Um, I was over helping a friend and we went afterwards uh, in the late afternoon. And it was when I had gone during the reservations, it was almost, you know, there were lines for, you know, for food and for stores here. It was like, it felt empty. I have a video that I put online today on slash and my YouTube channel, ordinary adventures. Uh, so you could see what it was like in galaxy's edge, but like, uh, I mean, it, it was good for me as a person who was there. Like I, uh, it was the first time I actually really enjoyed Oga's cantina because it wasn't like packed and, uh, you felt like the, the cast members behind the counter were actually giving you good service, but I can't imagine Disney is feeling happy uh, with this, uh, they have unblocked the cast. Uh, the cast members were blocked out for the entire summer. It's so dead in Disneyland that they've unblocked the cast members from Disneyland. They sent out this email yesterday to annual pass holders, like announcing this new deal where if you're an annual pass holder, you can bring up to three friends to the park and get them in t- for park 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 hopper passes for ninety nine dollars each, which is like almost half price. Um, hmm. So, Jake, what is going on here? Like, uh, is why why is the park so empty? I think Disney overplanned. You write this in the article, but I think it's a case where they built it in such a way to maximize the reliability of those opening weeks when things were opened up. I think people had heard the news about those first few weeks, how busy it was, how crowded it was, how complicated it was, and they all said, no, thank you. I'll come back in four or five months when the new ride is open. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot. It was, it's a case of them Disney doing absolute right by the customers and them actually building a system that would have helped the most people, but ended up scaring a lot of people away. And, you know, and I think that similarly, that was the case to a lot of locals, but I think a lot of uh, tourists from outside of California, myself included, looked at all this and said, I'm not going to Galaxy's Edge until the second ride's open. I'm going to wait until it's complete land when there's more to do, when there's like the the e-ticket ride is ready to go. So I think it's a combination of alienating yeah. locals and alienating um, for, uh, tourists from out, out of state and out of country, people who are ready to do this. But I will say it sounds like if you want a Disneyland vacation and don't care about Star Wars, this is the time to go because nothing else has a wait, right? Yeah, I saw Radiator Springs Racers, which usually has, you know, what, two-hour-long lines. It had a 15-minute line while I was there. Haunted Mansion was a 10-minute wait, uh, which is basically a walk-on. Um, it, it uh, I don't know. It's it's weird because, you know, when I brought Brad to Galaxy's Edge and he wanted to get his lightsaber, he had to run. He had to be at the front of the line and run to Savi's workshop to even get in there. Like, if you weren't in there in the first five or ten minutes – uh, you weren't going to get a, a reservation in there. And and when I was there the other day, people were just walking up and getting reservations. People, there was no line for the Droid Depot to make droids. Uh, you know, we were able to get a cantina reservation later on in the day, like not like, I guess, reservations go on sale at 7 a.m. Um, but strangely enough, even though, you know, a lot of people aren't there, it's not packed. They're sold out of, like, a lot of things. I, I know I talked about this on the water cooler, but there's half of the Legacy lightsabers are sold out. You'll see in my video that they've actually – one of the things in this land is they've said that everything in this land is in-world. And none of the things in this land have the, you know, the Star Wars logo or Disney logo on it. Um, you know, you are in 
the world of Star Wars. And so you're not buying merchandise that like has like branded logos. Um, and one of the interesting things is they've sold out of all the like popular legacy lightsabers like Ray, uh, Luke, Darth Vader. And to accommodate that, because they know people want to buy those lightsabers, they're selling the old lightsabers that Disney produced and used to sell in um, Star Traders that actually have the Disney logo and the Star Wars logo on the box and stuff. So I think that's gone out the window, which is kind of sad, but I guess wow, they got that was that so fast. Out so much like the idea of like, I'd rather to be empty shelves and cheaper <laughs> shit. Yeah. But that's it, just, it is cheaper shit too. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, also like I mentioned all the kyber crystals are sold out. Uh, those are the things that you put in. If you build a lightsaber, you can put it in your lightsaber and change the color of the lightsaber. Um, it, they at Droid Depot, uh, they are sold out of all the personality chips. Like so you can build a droid and then you put a personality chip. You have like one of six is when what they launched with. And that chip would change how that droid uh, sounds, acts like throughout the land. If you encounter like a first order stormtrooper, if you have a resistance ship in there, that droid will be afraid. Um, so those chips are like part of that whole customization, and they're sold out of all of them. Um, they're sold out of the droid ba- backpacks at Ogus Cantina. They had this like $75 beer flight, which is this collectible uh, wooden beer flight, but the beers are. Sold in, um, or you can drink them out of like these Rancor teeth cups. And, um, I guess they just did not anticipate how many people would want any of these things. Um, but at the same time, it's not like full. So, like, what is going on? Like, uh, I don't know. I feel like they probably did some focus groups with some, some like middle America mothers and were like, you know, gauging the interest of how many people would buy like a Rancor teeth flight or a lightsaber and probably got drastically smaller numbers than they you know were working off drastically smaller numbers than they actually you know could have ordered um so who knows when they're going to restock all this stuff but uh Uh, peter here's my question has this ever happened to the wizarding world of harry potter universal because the haggard coaster just opened there and it had like a 10 hour wait opening day and there was a universal almost seemed proud of how big and crazy their line was and how people were willing to wait and i've never heard of them running out of wands at, at the harry potter shops so i feel like that <laughs> has this ever happened there i, I can't I, think of a time i can't think of a time but it is interesting that you bring up hagrid's uh magical creatures motorbike adventure uh ride that just opened up there because uh that's been getting a lot of flack because it opened up i think what people are thinking it opened up earlier than it should have it's been having some problems um but um you know universal did not really prepare any kind of plan like disneyland they didn't announce like any kind of virtual queuing system people you know there's videos of people waiting 10 12 hours in line to go ride that ride and um it's interesting that disney did things the right way like they probably paid a lot of computer engineers and UI guys to develop this whole system of virtual queuing system so that people they go to Disneyland could get into this virtual queue and not wait in a line somewhere to get into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and it's only been used in the first couple hours of that first day of non-reservations it's like it's pretty insane that that Disney went the extra mile and it probably is what is preventing people from going to the park it, what do you think Jacob 
I think you're completely right. And I also think they should just not open with that rise of resistance, man. I think that if they had the entire land ready and had that massive, gigantic ride, the one that's next generation, the one that could, whose queue could suck up thousands of people, I think we'd be having like the instant blockbuster here. I think that when the when the system is in, system in place and when that ride does open, I think they'll be thankful for it. I think that <laughs> in a few months, they're going to need it. Uh, but right now, it, it's a bad look. But I also think that Maybe we can look at these first, you know, four or five months of operation as a soft opening for when Rise of Resistance completes the world. Yeah, but it's just, it, it's also strange because I feel like this is hurting Disney, oh, oh like hugely, uh, in what they're uh, the amount of money they're making with their park because it's not like people are staying out of Galaxy's Edge. People aren't going to the theme parks in general. Um, ben, I'm wondering what you, your thoughts are on this because you're not a big theme park guy, like. Uh, Jacob and I, and you don't have an annual pass. Uh, when are you like? Have you all this excitement over Galaxy's Edge? I'm I'm sure you're interested. Yeah, to go. that's the thing. Is like you know, I I think I'm the person that um that heard all of the the noise about it and just decided, okay, I'm just gonna stay away for a year or six months or something because this is gonna be too crazy. And just to hear that it's actually not crazy and might in fact be like an ideal experience to go now, of course, minus the fact that rise of resistance isn't open um, is, is like so shocking to me. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I don't know, man, it's uh, I just, I guess I hope that because you, you guys were talking about how like Disney made the right decision and they're being punished for it. But I hope that they realize that and don't, take the wrong lessons from it. You're always talking, Peter, about how yeah. Hollywood takes the wrong lessons from everything. I hope that they don't, you know, incorporate the result of what's happening here into future business decisions without, you know, I, I guess, um, I guess in opposition to uh, the decision that they already made, which was to do the right thing and, and to try to make this experience as, as uh, painless as possible for its customers, because the idea, the alternative of standing in line for 10 or 12 hours or something like you're talking about is just like the definition of insanity to me. Like there is no way on God's green earth that I would ever be doing anything like that. But I definitely would visit and will visit Galaxy's Edge. And it sounds like now might be the time <laughs> for locals to go and check it out. Yeah, I, I should say that I don't know what it's going to be like on the weekend. Maybe on the weekend it'll be a lot more crowded. But on the weekday, it was it was empty. It was really empty. I was shocked because if you've ever been to Disneyland on a summer day, it's usually packed. It, it's it's uh, crazy. Anyways, you can read my whole write-up on this and see a video of that uh, visit to Galaxy's Edge uh, where I go through. And um, it also actually interesting, worth noting, um, when – for the first few weeks of Galaxy's Edge opening, uh, the build-your-own lightsaber experience, with that, you are presented with these lightsaber parts, and you put them together into your own lightsaber, and then the parts that you do not put onto your lightsaber, like about half of them are not put uh, built into the lightsaber, actually go back to Savi's and stay there. And uh, even people from my group were like, oh, I wish I could buy extra parts and wish I could keep some of those parts that I... I, I didn't choose so that I could choose to, you know, change out parts later on or something like that or, you know, buy a part from another set. Uh, now, apparently, as I was in Doc Ondar's, they started selling these extra parts. So uh, I, I guess they have so little stuff on the shelves to sell, Jacob, that they're now selling, um, you know, pieces of lightsaber parts that are not even in retail boxes. 
to two people, which I don't know. It is honestly, I, I like that, but um, it's just crazy. Uh, anyways, check out that video. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, let's talk about Comic Con because that's fastly approaching. Um, Jacob, what is going to be there? What is not going to be there? Well, we learned uh, another name not going to be there is Sony Pictures is joining Warner Brothers and Universal in sitting out this year. And this means that as we're planning our coverage this year, it's very TV focused because a lot of the major studios simply are sitting it out. I mean, Paramount will be there. And, we, and it's looking more and more likely that Marvel's going to be there, although it hasn't been an entirely 100% official announcement yet. Uh, but Hall H this year, man, is dominated by television because everybody's sitting it out. And that means that Sony could have brought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which opened shortly after Comic-Con. They could have brought Charlie's Angels, Zombieland 2, Morbius, Bloodshot. Uh, but they didn't, which is either a sign of Sony not having faith in their slate or a sign of Comic-Con dwindling as a presence for major motion pictures. And I think this is a case of a little bit of both, personally. Uh, all I know is that this is the first year in, goodness, a long time where we have a v- small crew going to Comic-Con because we feel like we don't need like the entire staff down there. Uh, Peter, how long has it been since we only sent two people to Comic-Con? Oh, uh, I don't know. Ten years? Maybe? <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah, I, I think it's probably like the first year I went, I went alone and aside from that, we br- we always have brought a bigger crew of like three or four people. Um, so yeah, this is this is pretty crazy. Uh, they haven't announced everything yet, right? Not yet. They're still waiting on, on a few things. But with each passing day, each, with each press release, you know, I we heard from we heard from AMC and HBO, um, you know, uh, TBS even, uh, but. I, studios are being shy. I mean, the, the only thing Warner Bros. is doing is doing Scare Diego again, which is their pre-con uh, horror movie showcase that we covered last year. And we know they're bringing It Chapter 2 to that, but that's not, that's not even part of Comic-Con. That's a Comic-Con adjacent experience. So I hope you like TV, and I hope you <laughs> like hearing about TV, because we're going to have a lot of great television coverage for you coming out of Comic-Con this year. Game of Thrones has a victory lap panel. The new Snowpiercer series is off the top of my head. Uh, Amazon is pulling out all the stops uh and bringing out a bunch of stuff like the, the premiering the boys there but it is going to be hopefully fingers crossed uh it will be a more relaxed year because i know for a lot of people going to comic-con is a dream but covering comic-con and planning for comic-con can be a genuine headache uh for people who have to work it so i'm kind of secretly hoping that things stay a little slow so ht and i who will be down there this year can actually fit in everything and not have to, you know, you know, destroy ourselves. Ben, you have sworn off Comic-Con. How does this sound to you? Uh, it sounds <laughs> like like the ideal version of Comic-Con for anybody who has to cover Comic-Con, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, ever since um, Scott Pilgrim had such a big presence there and in, I think it was 2010, and didn't perform well at the box office, I think that's been the, uh, the defining thing, the moment that people point to as okay, maybe studios have gone a little bit too far in spending a lot of money here for not that much return. And that was almost 10 years ago. And I think it's been a slow decline since then with studios realizing that, like you said, that, you know, this stuff isn't maybe necessary as much as it, as it used to be. Um, and then, of course, you've got like D23 and, and Star Wars Celebration and all these other opportunities for people to showcase their own stuff um, without having to compete in this environment. So, yeah, I think... Um, I, I mean, I really do think that like you guys are going to have 
a nice, relatively relaxed time. I'm sure there's going to be some uh, some pretty crazy moments here and there because there always is, you know, double schedules and, and yeah. things that sort of like pile up on top of each other. But I, th- I think for you guys and for the readers, there's going to be this is going to be a really interesting Comic Con because I feel like you're going to be able to cover a lot more stuff without having to be so focused on, you know, uh, I feel like there's going to be more room for exploration and discovery there. Last year was interesting because there was only like one huge day last year. And usually you have all like a lot of people like when you think of Disneyland, a lot of the people that are in Disneyland are eaten up in lines. They're in line somewhere. And Comic-Con's the same way. Usually at Comic-Con, people are in, the, are in that Hall H line or they're in Hall H itself. But last year they weren't. So if, like the, the con felt last year like it was more packed than usual because those people were not sitting in an auditorium. They were walking around San Diego and walking around the show floor. So it felt more busy. What what I'm wondering is, are we seeing a different, like we're seeing it, we're obviously seeing an evolution of what Comic-Con is. And it's interesting. Some of the panels they have announced, like the Russo brothers are doing a panel, Marcus and McFeely are doing a panel. Is, is Jacob, I'm wondering if, you, if you're, I'm wondering what you think of this because like, could it be that like Comic-Con will become in the hands of like these producers and creators to like kind of it's not about the studio and a film, but now it's about these guys, you know, promoting their brand and their filmography that they're working on and developing. You know what? I hope so, because as much as I enjoy those lavish studio presentations where they bring in extra screens and there's that big like rock concert environment going on like marvel two years ago when they revealed infinity war footage was incredible as much as i like that it, it you're still waiting in line for hours to be advertised to whereas if you go into a panel i hope he doesn't have as long of a wait to watch two filmmakers discuss a movie you love you're gaining viable insight and not seeing a trailer five minutes before it hits youtube so i think we're definitely seeing that kind of shift and that we're not seeing a shift just with film stuff i mean this year's e3 the electronic entertainment expo sony set it out for the first time ever and people who were on the, the show floor said like there were it was far less crowded, there was far less fewer there were far fewer major announcements. And I feel like both video game companies and movie studios are starting to realize that they can control the message in different ways. They can have their own conventions, they can have their own panels, they can put something up on YouTube. Um, Nintendo wise up to this years ago. They no longer have a huge press conference at E three. They put together a thirty minute long video they drop online during E three and just enjoy the results because people get the same thing out of it. I think the internet has fundamentally changed uh, how people experience cons. So you want those experiences where you're going to be in the room with the creative, hearing them speak to you, which is because that's more valuable than watching a trailer five minutes early, which is what it's been about for a decade. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, let's move on to our last story here. Uh, One Day at a Time. This is a show that was canceled by Netflix, uh, and it is alive again? Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so about three and a half months ago, Netflix canceled One Day at a Time after three seasons. This is a really uh, beloved, popular TV show. Um, It's sort of like a a revamp of the Norman Lear uh, classic from, I think, the 1970s. And and Lear, who is like still alive at at age 96 and still executive producing, uh, is still involved with this show. And um, yeah, there was a big outcry as soon as it was canceled. I think we talked about it on the show. 
and now a cable channel called Pop TV, which some of you may recognize as the home of the another beloved TV show, Shit's Creek, uh, has now picked up this series. And I think this is the first time that a streaming show has ever been picked up by a cable network. For the longest time there, it was the reverse. It was it was network shows being canceled and places like Netflix swooping in and you know, resurrecting them and snatching them from the, the jaws of death. But now the reverse is happening here. So a 13 episode fourth season is going to be debuting on pop TV sometime in 2020. So that's uh that's the, the basic gist here. Yeah. Uh, well, that is good for fans of that show. I, I know I've heard a lot of good things. I don't think anyone on this podcast has watched this show, right? Uh, I have not. Uh, not me, but I do have a question. I know the show has an extremely dedicated online fan base. You got very, very loud when this was canceled on Netflix. But how many of them are going to seek out Pop TV and watch it? Because before it was readily available to anyone who paid the monthly subscription on Netflix. Will this move the needle in any way? I mean, is, is a loud fan base enough to get people to go to what, what is what is a niche network? I, I, I don't know. I'm very curious yeah. where this goes. I was wondering about that as well, because like you said, the, the ease and, and um, you know, of accessibility for something like Netflix is, is I mean, we've, we've seen this. We talked about it earlier this week when The Office uh when the news came that the office is going to be taken off of Netflix and, and there was such an outcry about that, people love the idea of just being able to hit one button on Netflix and watch all of the stuff. And the idea of, of for a lot of these people who are cord cutters, presumably who don't pay for cable now having a new season of the show, go to a cable network. And then what does that mean? Are they going to have to subscribe to cable just for the show? Or maybe there's enough there to, to get people to subscribe to cable again. But that seems like a regret direction for you know considering all of the streaming services that are popping up now um so it's also i, I, I think all three of us know how this is gonna end <laughs> what the show's gonna get canceled yeah sadly <laughs> well the the thing is there you know there's i i get i, th- I think it is going to lose some of those people who won't subscribe to a cable channel, but it might be able to gain a different audience because CBS owns this pop TV network. And even though the streaming rights for the show, uh, limit it based on the contracts and all that stuff where one day at a time cannot be airing on any other streaming service for like several years because of the way that the contracts are laid out, it can actually go to traditional linear networks. So CBS is going to be able to um, broadcast its the fourth season after it airs uh, on Pop TV, actually on CBS, like the main network. And Pop TV is going to be able to air the first three seasons of one day at a time on its show leading up to this new fourth season. So that will be an opportunity to grab maybe people who haven't seen it on Netflix yet. And yeah. and if there's such a, a devoted fan base, then there's got to be something good about the show. So maybe they'll be able to pull in and sort of equal out some of those numbers. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how long this goes. Okay, let's get let's dive into the mailbag. Uh, a couple days ago, we were talking about Toy Story 4 and how that ended. And I actually, I guess now is a good time to say that if you have not yet seen Toy Story 4, you should probably turn this off now because we're going to be talking about the future of the Toy Story franchise and what that those possibilities are. And that basically involves spoiling the end of Toy Story 4. So uh, you've been warned. OK, so I asked for pitches for Toy Story 5 because I I, I think I, I came up with an idea of like Andy as an older man wanting to reconnect with his childhood and seeking out 
uh, Woody and Buzz to, you know, to reconnect with his old collection of toys. Um, we had a bunch of emails right in. I'm going to read a couple of them right now. Uh, Eric from Utah says, The end of Toy Story 4 sets up the future of Forky in the gang. Forky meets the new girl, Fork- the new girl Forky, and he says, quote, I will explain everything. Which directly leads into the Disney Plus show, Forky Asks a Question, in November. I think that'll, that I think that little series will it will be popular. Uh, they could continue stories from there too. I think I mean that is a good point. I didn't even see that that kind of leads into that show, but that I don't think that's going to have much other than Forky, and that show could be fun. Uh, let's uh, James F writes in. Obviously, the story for Toy Story Five would be that the toys have become depressed and suicidal because all children want to do is play on their phones. <laughs> now, I mean, this is actually an interesting idea here, right? Because kids nowadays, I don't think they would be that entertained by a, you know, Sheriff Woody doll. Jacob, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh not on this one, but I, I, I do have my Toy Story 5 pitch you asked for, Peter, if you're ready for it. Okay, pitch, uh, pitch away. Okay. Uh, it is 40 years from now. Global warming has devastated the world. Andy is now a grizzled Mad Max figure driving across the wasteland struggling to survive. When he comes across Bo Peep and Woody, uh, and and since the world is over, they start they stop faking it from him. They, they start talking. Andy thinks he's gone crazy, and it's a buddy cop Mad Max story with Andy and his talking toys as they try to survive the wasteland. And meanwhile, we see inside Andy's mind where all the inside out emotions are, and it ends with all the Wally people coming back to Earth to, to save the Earth. <laughs> you know, when I, when I asked Jacob to pitch a Toy Story 5, he was so reluctant. Like, he, you, you love the end of Toy Story 4, right? Uh, I think it's perfect, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, this, this idea is ridiculous. I, w- I would pay to see this. Jacob. Oh yeah, I, I would too. It sounds terrible, and I would love it. Uh, it sounds like an illumination project. But if they treat that idea dead seriously, if they said if Pixar actually decided to cater to the crazies and say, "Yes, this is the extended universe uh, that where everything takes place at the same time," man, that's that's the way to do it. You do it that way. Uh, you just <laughs> make sure everybody's as miserable as possible, and then at the very end of that, and in, in Toy Story six, the Wally uh, humans invent. Uh, self-driving cars that kill them all. I mean, that's where the Cars universe comes from. I mean, it all works. <laughs> the the Pixar cinematic universe. Yeah, but it, but we, it's all not in the order you think it is. I uh, think everybody, everybody everybody from all the other movies is dead, killed by the cars. Man, this got dark. Real yeah, quick. It got really dark. Um, uh, Peter, really quickly before we move on from this, I think James brings up an interesting point here about the the thing about all the kids wanting to do is playing on their phones. Yeah. And there's actually a Toy Story property that deals specifically with that idea. Well, maybe not the phones, but the idea of kids playing with modern toys. And that's uh, a short called the uh, Toy Story that Time Forgot, which is really great. It, I think it aired on ABC. Um, I'm not sure if it's like readily available anywhere, if it was released as like a bonus feature on any of the the stuff. But if you can seek that out, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's only like half an hour long. I think it's 22 minutes. And it's basically about Bonnie um, going to hang out with her friend Mason, this kid named Mason. And she brings a bunch of her toys over to his house. And he has this video game console. And he's obsessed with playing this video game. And he gets Bonnie to play with 
him in in this video game world and they basically just throw the toys aside and the toys have this whole adventure while the kids are playing uh with this video game but eventually they um get bored with it and and decide to come back and and have that sort of like tactile uh experience playing with these toys and and bonnie sort of like teaches mason about the the glory of playing with actual (laughs) physical toys instead of just being in a video game world interesting i gotta seek that out i've only seen the halloween special it's it's really funny too. It's it's um, uh, Kevin McKidd voices this character this character called Reptilius Maximus, who is um, oh this is one of the He Man like characters, right? It's it's kind of like that, but it's like a uh, it's like a race of dinosaurs. It's like a dinosaur line of toys as well. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. Well, I'll I'll seek that out. Um, Justin D also was on the same wavelength as James F. Uh, Justin D's from Dallas, and he writes in with his idea that it takes place several years after the events of Toy Story 4, and toy stores are going out of business, and kids are becoming more and more interested in electronic media instead of actual toys. Thus, the toys become more vintage and increase in worth. Bonnie, in the meantime, is hitting her preteen years, growing less interested in toys, and is playing with them far less. On top of that, Bonnie's parents are having a tough time financially. This seems like a lot of setup here, but okay. Uh, having a lot of uh, a tough time financially and have decided to downsize. And then when Do- Bonnie's parents decide that that may be a good time to sell the toys on eBay, uh, where some of them fetch pretty high prices, some of the lesser toy characters get sold to different people but the majority of the lot is sold to one lady meanwhile woody and Bo, while traveling with the carnival receive a message from buzz who has kept up with them by reading up on the carnival on the internet uh, where the destinations will be after woody and buzz receive the message they decide to extract their friends before they can get shipped out to where they are being sold. Adventures ensue, and despite their efforts, they fail to stop them from being sent. Then they find the address of who they were sold to and go there, and it is revealed that the buyer was Andy's wife and that the lot of toys bought were an anniversary present for Andy. Andy, of course, stunned that he was uh, he has his old toys back, shares the stories and adventures of him and his toys with a now young girl, uh, Woody, while tempted to join them, decides that visiting periodically when the carnival is nearby will give him an opportunity to watch Andy, his child, and their friends for many years to come. Uh, P.S. Toy Story 6 will be the gang trying to save Andy's marriage. <laughs> Man, that was so detailed. Yeah, honestly, like these Toy Story movies are written kind of like in these like uh they call it the sequence approach to screenwriting whereas like normal movies have like this three-act structure not that toy story movies don't have the three-act structure but they're written kind of like there is a goal every 15 minutes and then the whole thing kind of shifts to something differently like the, the whole thing changes and i feel like this pitch kind of goes with that like you know them actually getting home and then they miss the toy and you know like it it it, it evolves kind of, kind of episodically uh what do you think of this idea jacob i appreciate the creativity uh and i really think there's a lot of thought put into this uh i think that woody and buzz should never meet again i think that uh them meeting in any capacity in any future film or short cheapens that goodbye at the end of toy story 4 so um i'm gonna I'm going to turn down this pitch, but not because it's not not because it's bad, but because my personal preference is Woody has retired from that group, but retired from Andy and is his own man now. Damn it. 
But just because you're your own man, Jacob, doesn't mean you can't revisit with friends, you know, decades down the line. Not when you're a toy who's scattered across the country. <laughs> well, it's not like scattered across the country. He's, well, I mean, I guess he probably is because the carnival tra- travels, right? Yeah. Look, if I was Woody, I'd travel with the carnival until I find a nice, to find a nice climate, then settle down there and wait for the apocalypse when Andy finds me in his <laughs> Mad Max car. So, <laughs> uh, Ben, any thoughts on uh, this pitch? I mean, uh, just like Jacob, I appreciate the creativity. I actually think that uh, the idea of Woody meeting Andy again in any capacity is um, is like repulsive to me because it really? would it would destroy. Yeah, it would destroy the the uh, whole uh, emotional ending of three. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think that that part of his life is done. I mean, that that's like the whole uh, emotional arc that that he goes through across all four of these movies, and to just. Uh, drag him back into that world and and those characters again i think would would be a disservice to him unless i don't know unless there's some sort of angle here that i'm not seeing but uh yeah that's my that's my thought you know pixar has some smart people working there some very creative smart people and i'm sure that this is not going to be the final toy story so i'm sorry i'm sorry jacob because i don't see this mad max (laughs) sequel happening but uh, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a Toy Story 5 at some point, and it's probably not going to be that. Uh, we do have Peter. Some... What, what, what caused the Wally disaster? What caused the Wally disaster if not global warming? And did Andy go to space? We, we don't see Andy uh, up in that spaceship, and I feel like they would have put him there because you recognize him. Andy's clearly on Earth with the Wally. He's clearly <laughs> surviving somehow with where's Woody? Always oh, with Andy. You know, maybe there's a good dinosaur hanging about. Maybe the dinosaurs came back. I don't know. I don't know, Peter. <laughs> Peter, you better end this podcast. Jacob's going insane. Wait, did you just connect this with good dinosaur? <laughs> yeah, that one. That one's. Uh, that one actually takes place during the events of Wall-E because the dinosaurs come back and they're a result of radiation. They're Godzilla's essentially. <laughs> okay, I do want to end this episode. And I know we've gone far over, but I do got to relay one last message. Bunny Hero from Toronto, Canada writes in that Ben asked if there had been any other unscripted TV shows based on existing IP when he was talking about the, the Mist uh, TV series. Uh, there, uh, there was a kid's game show based on a computer game. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? So. Oh, yeah. That's a great one. That's That's like the perfect answer to this question. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So there you go. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find all the stories we mentioned on today's podcast linked in the show notes. Go check out that video from Galaxy's Edge. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question, comment, concern, feedback, send it to Peter at SlashFilm.com. Uh, we don't need your Toy Story 5 pitches anymore. I think we've gotten enough of those at this point. Um, and please leave your general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>